I can bring a smile to your face, a tear to your eye, or even a thought to your mind, but I cannot be seen. What am I? My name is Alex Bailey. And I am Alexa Ruel. And you're listening to Brainstorm, exploring minds and behaviors. Hello and welcome to Brainstorm, exploring minds and behaviors. If you're still having a bit of trouble with today's introductory riddle, then imagine this, your perfect day. Have you ever experienced the moment that you wished could have lasted forever? What would it look like, smell like, sound like, feel like, and even taste like? If you're thinking back to a previous event, then you have guessed correctly at today's topic and the answer to our riddle. Memory. Memory is complex. From remembering where your keys are, to what your name is, to the capital city of your home country, and even to what you ate for breakfast this morning, memory is an intrinsic part of the human experience and crucial for making us who we are. Memory is also something that's very popular in pop culture. From movie depictions of amnesia, like Memento, to implanted memories in films like Total Recall or The Matrix. But how does memory really work? Joining us today are three experts in memory research who have all kindly agreed to talk with us about how and why we remember. Let's get started. With us today, Dr. Sidney Sheldon, a professor from McGill University, studying how and why we remember the past. She studies how key factors such as aging and different mental illnesses affect memory processing. Dr. Sheldon was also recently awarded the Principal's Prize for Excellence in Teaching and is the Canadian Research Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience of Memory. Dr. Blake Richards is a neuroscience professor at McGill University affiliated with both MILA, Quebec's Artificial Intelligence Institute, and the Montreal Neuro. He is the Canadian Association for Neuroscience Young Investigator Award recipient in 2019 and one of 29 Canadian Institute for Advanced Research Canada AI chairs announced in 2018. Last but not least, we have Felicity Hamer, who is a PhD student in the Department of Communication Studies at Concordia University and is also a current public scholar. Her research focuses on memory and imagination through photography, bereavement and photography, as well as emotional engagement with photographs and much more. Thank you to the three of you for joining us today on um, a topic that I think we all think about, right, on the daily basis. Do we understand memory properly? Do we understand it fully or is there parts of what memory is that we don't fully understand? Maybe we can start with you, Dr. Sheldon. For me, that's a tough question to answer because memory is studied in so many different ways. So you have people who are studying the functions of memory, how we use memory for social interactions, for problem solving and so forth. There's other people who are studying memory at the cellular level. So. Um, while these parallel lines of research are going on in you know, all different departments, um, we are making discoveries about memories, um, but bringing them together is such a huge uh, undertaking and we, the resources aren't there to do that right now. So I think that we have all the, we're getting the pieces of memory, but bringing them all together to get that giant full understanding of memory is still something that uh, is, uh, hasn't been fully achieved. I completely agree. 
I think many fields of study are making huge forward strides, yet we still have so much to learn about how the human mind works. And at least to me, that's why I'm doing research and I find it so fascinating. How about you, Dr. Richards? Do you tend to agree? On some level, like we have a formal definition for memory that tells us exactly what it is. Memory is information transmission through time, period. And there's not really any question about that. It's kind of flows naturally from definitions. But as Signe said, then there's the question of like understanding all these other things. How does that, like, how does it actually uh, get implemented in our brains? How does that affect our capabilities, our conscious lives, et cetera? There's so many different questions you can ask that we've, uh, you know, only started to really delve into fully in the last few decades in which we therefore have very much so an incomplete understanding of. Hmm, I like that. Felicity, would you agree? Do you feel like from your field, there's also a clear understanding or conceptualization of what is memory? No, uh, absolutely not. Um, as a matter of fact, the whole like focus of my, my current dissertation work is to try to understand something that I don't know how to observe other than by looking at things that are happening kind of peripherally around it. So I'm looking at, I'm trying to develop a concept of hontography. So like photographs that are missing or misplaced. So that are just remembered. And so I look at remembrance activity occurring in ways that can be seen. Now, when it comes to considering this remembrance activity, I, I wonder, um, it almost seems as though the types of things that one is able to remember are not perfect representations of actual events that someone may have experienced in real life. If this is the case, does this mean that the way in which we are able to gather information or to use the technical and I guess more correct term of encode information into our memories is in and of itself an imperfect process? Of course, our memories are not uh, perfect replications of the past. And if they were, they wouldn't allow us to use them for adaptive functions, such as, you know, being able to generalize uh, things that we learn from specific past experiences to current scenarios or future ones. But let's say I was uh, out at a coffee shop and, uh, you know, I didn't tip the uh, barista and they got mad at me. Um, a lesson I could learn from that is, okay, you know, from that memory is that you should tip baristas uh, if they, they do a good job. Um, if I go to another coffee shop, let's say in the future, and I'm remembering the past episode and trying to consider whether I should tip them or not, if I uh, remember that past episode in so much detail that I think, oh no, it's nothing like this coffee shop because that one there, they, they, had, uh, they had green cups and the barista had uh, you know, brown hair and I'm in this coffee shop where the cups are purple and the barista actually has no hair. So it probably doesn't, uh, what I learned, the lesson I learned from that memory doesn't apply to this one. So we do have to, uh, remove some details from our memories when we're encoding them or when we're uh, when in the process of storing them in order for that memory to become adaptable so we can kind of squeeze it into future situations. I'll just add to that. I mean, we actually, it's, it's one of the areas of research in my lab. Um, you can show that computationally speaking, it is actually not advantageous to store everything perfectly. If you are an agent in an environment that is changing and complex, uh, it is actually better from a purely computational perspective to only store 
incomplete memories that capture the relevant parts of the past and not the irrelevant parts. And that's why I think it's interesting to note that um, the biological, the low level biological data suggests that the human brain is actually capable of storing more information than it does, but our brains actually actively remove some information over time. And indeed, there are, interestingly enough, individuals with this syndrome called highly superior autobiographical memory, who I'm sure Sydney knows a lot more about than I do, but who, according to my understanding, um, show almost perfect memory for past events. But it's worth noting that these individuals are not, you know, leaders in our society. They actually describe this as a uh, a handicap of sorts, they don't like it. And what this tells us is if it's biologically possible to have a much better memory than we do, and most of us don't, that's probably because evolution favored the development of imperfect memory. Okay, so that is very interesting. If that's the case, and evolutionary processes did indeed support this, this imperfect memory system, so then how does this necessarily relate to the concept of consolidation? That is to say, the ability to have memories and information stored for a long period of time in a stable way. Is there a specific brain area or brain areas that are responsible for this? Well, we know that like the hippocampus is like a critical region within the brain for encoding and retrieving recent memories, for sure. There's no debate about that. But what's important to know is it's not that the their hippocampus stores memories just like as a file. In fact, the hippocampus, what it does is when you want to retrieve something, it will act as an index or a pointer to this more uh, this, to this distributed uh, network that's connected to it that in which that memory is represented. So your memory is not stored in one place. Really, it's it's stored as a pattern throughout the brain. Now, over time, if you rehearse a memory or replay that memory, um, that memory can become consolidated and then it can become uh, retrieved independent of the hippocampus. I'll add to that uh, to say that uh, part of what we think is, is going on there is precisely, and I just want to clarify, this is now we're broaching on kind of computational theory. This isn't uh, well resolved in the field, but the kind of current best guess is that part of the big difference there is that the, the hippocampus is particularly good at forming very rapid arbitrary associations. Whereas the rest of this distributed network that, uh, you know, Dr. Sheldon was referring to is actually much better suited at extracting general statistical patterns from the environment. And so What's, what's happening here to some extent is that there is a computational division of labor, even if there's not a division of labor in terms of the storage of the memory per se. It's getting stored across the entire brain, but you have this special module in the hippocampus that can rapidly form these arbitrary associations to store details for you. And over time, as you consolidate, um, you can instead form these patterns across the distributed network that are independent of the hippocampal associations. 
This is super interesting. Um, I'm curious if the distinction or separation here between the role or the involvement of the hippocampus and this broad cortical network is related um, in any way to these system one, system two theories we get in various fields in psychology, whereby you have one that is fast and automatic and another system that is more controlled um, and effortful. Is there any relationship here to that or is that just um, something I'm making a link with here? Yeah, I, I, I love that division. I think that's that's so cool. And it's something that you we do think, uh, we do see at the more systems neuroscience level as well. Uh, the hippocampus is really important for that sort of like the flexible, uh, detailed retrieval of a memory. Whereas these, uh, these consolidated cortical-based representations of the memory are a bit more rigid. And I think that's an important distinction to make. And what's key is, that it's not that it's a memory that's stored as this consolidated form or as this hippocampal form, it's that it's about the retrieval process. So it's not about the content. I can retrieve the same memory independent of my hippocampus, but also I can use my hippocampus to retrieve it in this more flexible, flexible manner that actually allows me to kind of work with it and manipulate a bit more. So be more artistic with that memory. I actually wanted to, um touch in with you, Felicity, and see, you know, all these terms that we're talking about in this way of conceptualizing memory um, as kind of varied from the psychology or neuroscientific perspective. Um, does this reason, like, does this, does this, uh, is it compatible rather with the way you conceptualize memory? Is there like strong similarities or are there things that are very different? It's exactly as I conceive of it but it's being spoken of in a different way, you know, like just this kind of like this idea that there are these, there's this information that's being stored, but then the hippocampus, the imagination goes and retrieves this information and makes sense of it in the present, right? So it's, yeah, it's fascinating for me to hear you guys speak of it this way. And it makes me feel as though I can more readily access things that you are writing and use that in my own research and understand it in a way that I can apply it to, um, to my understanding of how we remember through photographs and how we continue to remember through photographs, even when the photograph is no longer accessible to us, which is the basis of my current dissertation research. What do you mean? Like if the photo is so it's like a memory of a photo? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a photograph that is still part and parcel to like, remembrance of an absent individual, somebody that we've lost or a former um, understanding of ourselves um, that is misplaced or intentionally avoided because it's too difficult to look at. Um, but when we, when we remember that individual, we're still remembering the photograph that used to provoke memories of them, that used to be connected to the memories of them. So it's essentially all the things that we bring to photographs, all the stories we tell in looking at them together, um, additions that we, that we bring to them, the context we, we create for them in the absence of the photograph. So all that remembrance activity that remains when the photograph is no longer, when it's removed from the equation. Like remembering a feeling is going to be more impactful than being shown something. That's really interesting, Felicity. So then it seems as though emotion in and of itself is this incredibly powerful way of remembering. 
I don't know. I mean, in the case of, of photographs of people we lost, I think part of it is, you know, it's just, uh, it's intuitive. We're looking for traces of them. We want little pieces of them, you know, photographs look like people we've lost, but they also feel like they, they contain some trace of them, right? The, the light bounced off them and back towards the camera. They, they're not just, they're not, they don't just look like them they seem to to hold something of them, you know, like a like a footprint or something like that. So it's just a way to kind of feel connected to them. We we gravitate towards photographs of people we've lost because we're just trying to amass anything, right? We're trying to amass anything that reminds us of them, and um, you know, and this is this is what turned me on to thinking about lost photographs because I lost somebody, and then I tried to find this photograph. I was looking for a photograph of she and I when we were teenagers and I wasn't able to find it. And I, I, I freaked out because I felt like I'm not going to be able to remember this person. I'm not going to remember um, the way that she would talk about our time together as teenagers because she was the one who told those stories over and over again. And I never had the ability to remember them as vividly as her or make it sound as amazing as her. Um, and then eventually I realized that I was still imagining the photograph and I was still doing all the same things, even though I couldn't look at the photograph. And so that's what's led me to, to wonder about all these things that we bring to photographs, you know, not just what they give us, but what do we give to them? They, they became kind of like a, a place to enact all this remembrance activity. And like, we're just depositing things into them. I'm curious, um, Dr. Richards, if you, um, given your background and a slight different perspective, um, what do we learn or what type of insight do we get from studying memory with from this computational perspective? And is it echoing a lot of what Felicity and Signe are saying, or do we get additional insights that we wouldn't necessarily get looking at it purely from a psychological perspective, for instance? What you get from studying it from a computational perspective is a quantification of the idea that Signe was articulating, that there are certain memories that, or certain ways of storing memory or recalling memory that will serve certain goals. And exactly how you then store a memory or recall it is going to relate very much so to what you're trying to do with that memory. And we can quantify that in computational models and we can show that different forms of memory and different ways of storing memory or recalling memory or forgetting memory has measurable effects on the downstream computations that you can perform with that memory. And so then you can just give concrete, uh, you know, formalism to the concepts that are being discussed here. It's really cool to see how different approaches really do provide us with unique insights we might not be able to gain otherwise. For our audience, would you mind explaining what a computational model is and how we use it to study memory? Sure. So a computational model is, uh, for all intents and purposes, just a series of equations that describe the behavior of some system in an abstract manner, and which we typically then also create a simulation of on our computers in order to study the behavior of the, of the equations themselves, because often for the type of systems that we're studying, like the brain, the equations are not themselves easily solvable. So you need to 
run a simulation and see what happens when you just put these equations in a computer and let it go. So for example, um, we just finished up a, a computational study of the importance of forgetting for uh, decision-making in a foraging task. And so if we have these little artificial you know, agents that we simulate in a, in a world where they have to go find food for themselves, quote unquote, I call it food. Of course, it has no energy content or anything, but it's just they, they get a little number that says, good stuff, keep finding this. And what we show is that if we formulate the equations such that the agent has completely no limits to its memory system, that agent will actually be worse at dealing with changes to the location of these rewards they have to find than an agent that only remembers like 50% of the memories that, that it could possibly remember. And this is all just done with math and simulations on computers. That is really, really cool. One thing actually that you brought up based off of your discussion of computational models and something that I kind of wanted to also ask you about too is, is it possible to devise different kinds of models that can try to see how memory can react in different contexts? Specifically, there is this concept of being able to kind of produce memories that individuals may be familiar with, but actually never experienced at all. So the term of a false memory, quote unquote. And I was just curious kind of about your thoughts of this concept um, in terms of what is a false memory, how can we look at it, and also how you can study it using more computational methods. Well, I should say that a lot of work, uh, and Sydney, feel free to jump in at any point as I articulate this, a lot of work has been done on this in psychology. Um, the, the, one, the stuff I'm most familiar with is the work of uh, psychologist Elizabeth Loftus, who's done a great deal of work on implanting false memories in people. And indeed, um, you know, there are certain conditions under which you can get people to be convinced that they remember something, which was in fact just a story that was told to them in an earlier session with a psychologist. Um, and from a computational modeling perspective, this is totally unsurprising because when you look at the equations of how you're going to store information in a neural network, the neural network can't really distinguish with some godlike judgment the difference between information it received in reality and information it received via some other channel. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, it's only natural that you can create false memories. So then if false memories are relatively easy to create, then does that mean that a large chunk of our memories may actually be false? The prevalence of false memories is far greater than I think we think they are. So false memories can occur. Uh, yeah, definitely they can be implanted. And that's sort of at the at the end, this, uh, you know, extreme end of what we think of false memories, but we can have false details within a lot of our memories. And this can arise from a number of uh, sources. So simply just the way I ask you about a memory is going to distort how you retrieve it. So there's a classic study that uh, asks, uh, has participants view a car crash and then afterwards they'll ask people how fast were the cars going when they 
smashed into each other versus how fast were the cars going when they hit each other. And uh, the participants who were asked about the cars smashing into each other will give far higher estimates of speed than the people who don't. So simply the way you're being asked can uh, induce false elements within a memory. Memories can also um, be recollected falsely um, just by uh, being guided by our general understanding of the world. So often we'll have memory and maybe it doesn't quite follow what we would expect to happen, let's say in a restaurant or at a coffee shop. And we will, we will kind of fit it uh, with that general script. So our general understandings of the world can distort our memories in some way. And I think that um, that is really in, uh, important. It's a re really important aspect of memory because again, it comes back to the idea that our memories are flexible, they're uh, malleable, which helps with this adaptive purpose. But the problem is that we have this false understanding that memories are perfect. And so much of the point that we rely on them for eyewitness testimonies and everything. And um, I think we just have to move away from that understanding. And definitely the field of uh, memory research is moving away from that field that forgetting is completely bad and memory must be perfectly uh, perfectly uh, detailed in order for it to be uh, useful. That's really interesting, Dr. Sheldon. Um, it it kind of reminds me of something along the lines of a uh, flashbulb event, something that is very emotionally shocking and captures one's full attention simply because it is so blatantly present. So this could be something like a car crash or even something that is even more severe and shocking like the event of 9-11 that was noticed not only by people living through the actual episode in the United States, but also all those millions of people watching the event by television. What I'm curious to ask is whether or not an individual who experiences a flashbulb event that is indeed a false memory can still consider this as being a real experience. That is, how can we be certain that our own memories are actually real? But they experienced it. They did experience it in a different way. You know, it's still a memory. It can still be traumatic, not in the same way, but it's still, you know, it's still valid. And, you know, it can move people to, you know, good things, but it could also lead people to feel like they have some kind of like intimate knowledge of something that they could obviously never actually um, understand the repercussions of, you know, um, so, but, but it's still, it's not a false memory. It's kind of an appropriated memory in a way, right? Thinking about the term false memory is a false term. So if we're trying to say that these are false memories, then we're, the flip side is we're assuming that memories are always true. So I think an important question is if somebody's experiencing a false memory, in the sense that it is something that did not happen, uh, what determines whether that is uh, different than a memory that somebody, than something that did happen? If a person really truly just feel like they experienced something and it has an impact on their life in that moment, then um, why is that any different than uh, another memory in terms of the, of the goal it's serving? So I don't know. So now I'm curious, given that our memories are so flexible to begin with, 
then does there sort of exist a point where the distinction between false memories and real memories can become rather blurry? Where this gets interesting and where we start to differentiate, if not false memories from real memories, but let's say um, intersubjective memories versus subjective memories, is shared memories. And when, when a group of people share the same content in their memories, that has different implications for your ability to act cohesively as a group. And it also obviously has some different implications for the likelihood that that thing truly happened. And, you know, I think that the more important thing though is that first one, which is it's only by having intersubjective shared memories that we can cohesively act as a larger group typically. And so, really having these things where you and others agree this is what happened in the past is, is absolutely critical to any sense of objective reality and the ability to behave intelligently and rationally as, as a cohesive social unit. And I mean, like, sorry, Blake, I don't mean to like, hey, but I think that's like a question that is uh, important, important to answer. Um, and I think the answer is that we don't really know right now. If a group of people all uh, agree on something as being veridical, but it didn't actually happen, is that going to serve the same purpose as a true memory? I'm actually willing to say it will serve uh, many useful purposes. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here, uh, and at the risk of, of offending any of your listeners or, or anyone here today, and say that many instances of the construction of religion throughout history have come about from just these sorts of shared, potentially false memories of events. And those shared false memories might actually have been critical to the construction of a cohesive social identity and group mentality that allowed a society to grow and thrive. Um, even though technically it was a memory for something that never actually really happened or which was so distorted by all of the individual's interpretations of that thing that it doesn't really, it's not, can't be described as veridical. Actually, Dr. Richards, I would go out on a further limb and say, I actually think that this applies not only to, to things like religion, but even uh, personal stories or things that we would consider as family history of a, for example, that someone knows their grandfather fought in, in the Second World War and was a war hero but who never actually saw battle. And you have this whole construction of your personal identity or, or a sense of, of your what you perceive as reality that is not factual, but at the same time, it also doesn't hurt anybody because it's something that's true to that individual and helps to kind of create their sense of identity, which is really cool to consider. I think a lot of this makes total sense when we think about for most of human history, at least um, a huge part of it, the stories, the values, the um, history that was passed down from generation to generation was done through memory, was, you know, stories that were told from father to son, mother to daughter, etc. And these had to be held in memory and recalled appropriately. And when you think of it that way, these false memories are maybe not false at all, and that the false parts of them are just as true as what we consider true memories. Dr. Sheldon, Dr. Richards, Felicity, I think that this is going to be all the time that we have for today, but thank you so very much for joining us on Brainstorm. Most of all, thank you so much to each and every one of you for joining us today for yet another episode of Brainstorm, exploring minds and behaviors. 
We hope that this topic and episode piqued your interest, and that perhaps you may have learnt just a thing or two about the mysteries of memory. If you like what you've just heard and you're interested in learning more about our podcast, our episodes, our mission, or maybe you want to join us as a guest, reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or simply email us at brainstorm.podcast.mtl at gmail.com. Until then, we look forward to brainstorming with you soon.